When I reached 30, I looked back on my past. The previous victories were not due to my having mastered strategy. Perhaps it was natural ability or the order of heaven or that other school's strategy was inferior. After that, I studied morning and evening searching for the principle and came to realize the way of strategy when I was 50. Nat, I have been looking forward to doing this book on Made You Think for a while. I think we've been talking about this one since the very beginning. Yeah, we have had it on our list for a while. So it is a pleasure that we get to sit down and discuss The Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Musashi today. Yeah, and it's, um, well, I think the first thing that stands out about this book is how short it is. Uh, the first time I read it, I, so I got the Kindle version uh, maybe in like 2013 is when I first came across this book. And I got the Kindle version. I was reading it and I wasn't paying attention to like the percentage. And when I got to the end, I was like, wait, did I get like a like summarized version, a condensed <laughs> version? Like I had to look to see if it was like the full thing because I'd heard so much about the book. And I think at that point I was still associating like good book with long, dense book. Right. And I was just like, wait, is this the whole thing? And yeah, I mean, it is. And it's very powerful in a very concise way. Well, there's also there's the book Musashi, the novel, right. which is like almost Atlas Shrugged length. And so I think people mix up the two sometimes as well. So you hear Musashi is super, super long. And so you think, oh, Book of Five Rings is super long. But no, Book of Five Rings is very short. The novel is extremely long. You know, that might have been it because I think I actually heard of the novel first and then somebody said, oh, there's actually like a book written by Musashi. Right. Because the novel Musashi is a like a historical fiction book, right? Yeah, exactly. Have you read it? I haven't read it, but it's definitely on my list. I am about halfway through it and have been halfway through it for about four or five months now. So <laughs> that, that gives you an idea. Good. So we'll be doing an episode in about a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is the problem. If I don't have an episode scheduled with you, then I just am not nearly as good at finishing books. Hey, accountability. I do the exact same thing, though. I have... Um, there's a, a book of, uh, have you heard of Rumi, the, the Persian poet? Yeah, you've sent me some of his stuff now. So yeah, he's got some incredible poetry. And I've been reading this like, you know, just some collected works by him. And it's not a long book. It's like maybe 200 pages, 250 pages. And it's poems. So it's not like dense, long text. But I uh, have just been moving so slow through it. I'm, I think I started it in December. And here we are in May. And I'm like, yeah. not even halfway. Done. So it's hard to find time to read other stuff when you're <laughs> getting through, you know, Atlas Shrugged and Sapiens and Homo Deus and all these other books. Yeah, back to back weeks. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe someday we'll figure out how to manage both. Or, I don't know. Maybe we'll, we'll upload our consciousness to the Internet and have two people reading it or something. I don't know. <laughs> there we go. But uh, until then, we're stuck with our, our feeble reading speeds as they are. Exactly. All right. So this book is, um, I guess, just to frame it when he's talking about, you know, the way of strategy, I personally thought he, you know, he does a great job kind of focusing on the micro level, which is his actual craft, which he was a warrior. Was he a samurai specifically? He's like the greatest samurai ever, right? Yeah. So Musashi is kind of like widely considered the greatest samurai ever. Exactly. Yeah. So, and a lot of his examples are micro. They're talking about, you know, the art of actually being a samurai, but he also does a good job of, I would say, zooming out and looking at like the general principles of the things he's learned and how they would apply to other fields. You know, considering he doesn't have that much experience in other fields, I thought he did a, a really good job of that throughout the book. Yeah, I mean, if anyone's read any of Bruce Lee's philosophy, which is very good, he's got the book Striking Thoughts. It's kind of mm, a similar style. Yeah, so Striking Thoughts is great. It's all aphorisms. So it's very, you know, quick and skimmable. 
but you know he's talking about philosophy through the lens of martial arts and musashi is talking about philosophy through the lens of sword fighting but he's also i mean yep. he was also a painter a little bit of a writer obviously he i mean he's most famous for his duels right so he was apparently just you know undefeated for 60 some duels starting from you know a really young age and then eventually at some point in his life he moves into more like zen arts right so painting and calligraphy and obviously some of this writing i guess presumably as he gets older yeah so i'm not too familiar with how samurai duels are but i'm when you say duels i'm picturing a fight to the death is that true yeah at least according to the book pretty much all of them end in the other person dying yeah so you better be undefeated basically (laughs) (laughs) yeah if if you make it to that age then you must be undefeated (laughs) but he's also he's also kind of famous for developing this style of sword fighting with one short sword and one long sword and he talks about that a lot in the book and he kind of develops his own school of fighting which i think he refers to as the ichu school yeah. Let's see. Yeah, the I'm gonna butcher this Nidin Ichi Ryu school or Nitin Ryu style of swordsmanship. And he wrote this book pretty close to his death. So it was really kind of at the end of his life, just reflecting on everything that he had learned about sword fighting, philosophy, learning, and he breaks the book down into these five categories, right? Which are based on the elements. It's ground, water, fire, wind, and void. And that's kind of how the book is split up is, you know, each of those elements as it pertains to strategy, sword fighting, mastery, Zen, uh, a lot of topics that we've covered on the podcast before, except for sword fighting. Yeah, yeah, not well, yeah, first time for sword fighting. But yeah, a lot of the other topics were really similar. And uh, I want to take one quick step back to something you said there that was really interesting. Yeah. So you'd mentioned how he uses, well, and Bruce Lee, you were saying does the same thing where, you know, Bruce Lee is using martial arts as kind of this um, canvas to talk about philosophy. And he does the same thing here with sword fighting. I find books like that to be really useful. They are, well, one, they're really interesting, um, regardless, because, you know, the person who's talking is clearly like a master of their craft. But then you actually do find a lot of good, useful takeaways. At least I felt like that from reading this book, even though I've obviously never done sword fighting in my entire life <laughs> and probably <laughs> ne- you know, will not do a fight to the death duel with samurai swords anytime soon, hopefully. <laughs> but, um, you know, well, and if I do, I'm, I would be glad to have read this book. But, yeah, you know, but even though that's like not the field that we are at all in, right, like there were still tons of takeaways from reading this and Actually, my newsletter, which hopefully is going out today, if I can knock it out, I'm almost done, is uh, my monthly, the book recommendations one. There's a book called Levels of the Game by John McPhee that I'm recommending, which is, it's about tennis, but it literally is just about one tennis match, but it's the same kind of thing, right? They're using tennis as a canvas to talk about like temperament, psychology, and strategy that are widely applicable insights, but are not necessary, but they're just using tennis as like the, the canvas for it. An inner game of tennis was kind of like that, too, except obviously there were a couple chapters that were very tennis specific. Yeah. But the rest was widely applicable. That was one that I was going to call out, too, if anyone hasn't listened to that episode. Uh, Inner game of tennis is a great example of that. I think I want to say we've done another one, too, that was pretty good in that area. I can't remember what it was right now, though. Um, I mean, I would say principles, even though principles is very business heavy. They're like no matter what you're doing, there's a lot of good stuff in there. That's a good point. Yeah, that would be another good example of it. I think. Mastery, I guess, is a great one. It's <laughs> not really about any specific field, but mastery is a great one, too, on this topic. 
go to Lesher Bach kind of too, since it's, you know, presumably about computer science, but then it's tying in all these other areas. That one's definitely more of a stretch, but it is just about everything. I mean, I, I would agree with you though, that I love books where they kind of do that. They explain one thing through the lens of another thing. It just makes it a lot more digestible than kind of reading it in abstract. And I think it also makes it easier to like understand and remember, right? Mm-hmm. It's just so much easier to tie that knowledge to something than to try to like learn it in the abstract the way I think a lot of business books do. Yeah, exactly. Or books that try to make things very, um, what's the right way to put it, like narrow and focused. Like I think he even calls this out in the intro to the book. I, actually, I, I found the found the quotation. So this is from Book of Five Rings where he says, anyway, if you learn indoor techniques, you will think narrowly and forget the true way. Thus, you will have difficulty in actual encounters. I think that like really sums up a lot of like tactical books, right? Which are, let's say like a business book that's going to teach you marketing. I'm just going to make it up, right? That can very often, you know, I think those are useful once you have an overarching strategy potentially, but those are not going to teach you how to think. And if you walk into a book like that or not walk into a book, but start a book like that and come into it with the premise of, oh, this is going to teach me how to think. It's probably not. It might teach you cool tactics, but not going to teach you the actual, you know, what he's referring to as, in my opinion, what he's referring to with away. Yeah, exactly. So should we just dive right into the first book here? Yeah, but I think before we do, I should tell you the scent that I'm wearing right now. Oh, yeah. Tell me how you smell. I can't smell you right now. I, sm- I know. We're remote again, but not the next one. So you'll, you'll get to smell me in the next one. Oh, good. It's my favorite part of the week. Yeah, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, so I'm using I'm using Scentbird again because I am well, whether or not I'm traveling, I'm using Scentbird these days. But it's extremely useful when I'm traveling. So Scentbird is, uh, and the actual one I'm using, I forget the name, but it's got this like kind of like this is gonna sound bad, but it's got this like sweet tobaccoy smell. Oh, nice. I like that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's like when it, whenever I've heard that described, I'm like, oh, that doesn't probably smell good, but. The cologne actually smells good, so I kind of like it. Anyway, it smells, it's good, and I, I've just been really liking Scentbird. So Scentbird, for those of you guys who are not familiar, is basically this online subscription service that you can go on and select different perfumes, different colognes, and every month you receive a 30-day supply of them. So you can choose the same one every month. They have a ton of different, ton of different options. So you can choose the same one every month if you really like one, or what I like to do kind of in everything in my life is I like to sample a lot of different things. And, you know, you can go pick a whole bunch of different types of colognes, different types of perfumes, and basically create a queue, you know, of just the list of ones you'd want to you'd want to try. And uh, Nat, I don't know if our listeners know this, but made you think listeners get a special deal where with the code think you can receive 50% off of your first month of Scentbird. So it's only $750 a month instead of the normal $15 just for the first month, and then it goes back up to 15. But my opinion, that's actually not much, right? No, I mean, it's still a pretty good deal considering you're getting like top shelf perfumes or colognes, and you don't have to worry about refilling them or about it running out or having it take up a ton of space in your luggage or in your cabinet. So yeah, definitely recommend everyone check it out. I've got a few of them. Neil's got a few of them. They've got a great uh, thing going. And I am sort of just on a campaign to put all of my life on monthly subscription services. So this is a great addition to that. If, is there an article coming to that? You know, there isn't, but there probably <laughs> should. I mean, I've got I've got so many of them now, and they just make my life so much better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's just so much easier than going out, like remembering to buy things, right? I've got Quip for the toothbrush, 
and I've got butcher box for the meat and I've got kettle on fire for the bone broth and perfect keto for all the keto stuff. And I've got the mushroom coffee subscription and now I've got the Scentbird subscription. So definitely check it out. Scentbird uh, coupon code think for half off your first month. Sweet. Now, uh, I guess let's dive in. I think oh, and the, I, I forgot to mention the tea subscription too. that, that cup and leaf recurring tea subscription that that's the best one of all. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and uh, what's the one that I really like? The Earl Grey cream. Yeah, that cream roll gray. I got to subscribe to that. That sounds good. You do. I'll give you some when you get back. Ours is better than some of the other ones I've had. So I'm really happy with it. Nice. Yeah. All right. Let's dive in here. I think Musashi would have subscribed. He would have subscribed to Scentbird. He seems like the kind of guy. I think so. Hey, he loves tea. He drinks a lot of tea yeah. and Scentbird. He probably would <laughs> be very into that. I mean, he, he's running around in a kimono for all the time. He doesn't have like room to carry a proper perfume bottle. He's got to, you know. Go light. I don't know what he do about shipping addresses. That would be tricky, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe drone, but drone, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they had those back then. Probably, probably not in the <laughs> early 1600s. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was one thing. I, I know we're gonna get to this in a second, but that was one thing in the book where he did talk about guns, and I was like, wait, when was this written? And then I looked it up, and I was like, oh yeah, it's that weird overlap time where there were guns, but swords were still like very prevalent. Yeah. That threw me a little bit, too, because when you hear samurai, you think, you know, like pre 1000, right? Or at least I do. Yeah, right? I'm, I do. I do. Too. Yep. I'm not very up on my Japanese history. I think of it as a way older thing than it actually is. But yeah, I mean, he was born in 1584 and died in 1645. So that's uh, I mean, it's really not that like, long ago. Right. Smack dab in the Renaissance. Yeah. But it's kind of cool to imagine that that soon ago there were these you know men in japan roaming around with swords dueling each other yeah exactly it's kind of cool well it's also wild that in america right there were duels like in the early days of the united states and that was you know late 1700s oh i think there were still duels probably in the 1800s and stuff too right yeah you're probably right about that i don't think it's been gone as a tradition for that long and honestly i think we should bring it back because some people just (laughs) there needs to be a a legal way to just call someone on their bullshit like that i'm sad that that's gone we need that and we need to be allowed to hit like one person a year with our car right not not like hard not kill them but just enough to let them know that they're really being a dick and they should stop doing what they're doing like we need a little skin in the game for people crossing intersections or holding up traffic right there's got to be a bit of risk to it yeah i'll let you start that campaign <laughs> just the, put, a, put a little random number generator in the uh in the uber code right for the self-driving cars <laughs> just just keep calling it a bug. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's a bug. <laughs> no, it's just, you know, because otherwise people will just stand in front of the self-driving cars and they can't do anything about it. Right. It's going to be a problem. There's got to be a small chance that the car is just going to say, like, no, fuck you and run you down. <laughs> and it's just a coincidence that it keeps hitting all the self-righteous Internet people. <laughs> <laughs> all of Travis Kalanick's enemies are mysteriously getting run over by Ubers. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That sounds like a Black Mirror episode. Dude, that actually, I was going to say, that sounds like it could be an interesting, I was going to say plot for a movie, but I think that this is, it could also be a great Black Mirror episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. All right, let's 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 dive into the ground book. Dive in. So the ground book he lays out in the beginning as the foundation for the other books, because in some parts of the book he's, and when I say, that's very confusing uh, when I say book and book, but <laughs> in some parts of the whole book. He's talking about very detailed strategical, you know, sword fighting stuff. And in other parts, it's broader philosophical things. And this book felt like some of the broader philosophical topics that lay the foundation for some of the more specific ideas in the later books. 
And I think that's probably why we both had the most in this book and maybe the water book. It felt the most generally applicable to, you know, life beyond sword fighting. Yeah, definitely. One thing that he opens with that I like is that there are these four ways in which men pass through life. And so I'll just read from it. Uh, There are four ways in which men pass through life as gentlemen, farmers, artisans, and merchants. The way of the farmer, using agricultural instruments, he sees springs through to autumns with an eye on the changes of season. Second is the way of the merchant. The winemaker obtains his ingredients and puts them to use to make his living. The way of the merchant is always to live by taking profit. Thirdly, the gentleman warrior carrying the weaponry of his way. The way of the warrior is to master the virtue of his weapons. If a gentleman dislikes strategy, he will not appreciate the benefit of weaponry, so he must have a little taste for this. And fourthly, the way of the artisan. The way of the carpenter, architect, and builder, all buildings were of wood back then. Oh, okay, so this is a clarification from the interpreter. Uh, the way of the carpenter is to become proficient in the use of his tools, first to lay his plans with true measure, and then perform his work according to plan. Thus he passes through life. And I think this is a perfect example of how Musashi is using these very simple real life examples to talk about a broader sort of like philosophical concept, right? Are you someone who is just very in the moment, like being a farmer, seeing, you know, the seasons change and kind of tilling your field? Or are you this artisan who has this long plan and knowing how to use your tools and then performing your work according to plan? Are you this like merchant just totally focused on profit, right? It's he's telling these different character archetypes through the lens of professions. Right. Yeah. He's almost like created these like personas pretty much and mm-hmm. are still all using the same principles in general, like not, not completely, but he, he uses them as, uh, as descriptors for different ways of looking at the principles that he talks about. Yeah, exactly. And, and he uses, he uses this too, to talk about learning Right. He says, you know, learning is kind of like being a carpenter where the teacher cannot force learning on the student and the student cannot learn in isolation. The teacher is a needle and the disciple is a thread and you must practice constantly. So the teacher can like provide guidance, but you still have to move through the process. Yeah. Like a needle by itself can't do much. And a thread by itself is just going to aimlessly not be able to be directed right in any way. Kind of sit there. Yeah. Yeah, no, I really like that. It's, it's like the symbiotic relationship, right? Like you can't have one really without the other because you can't even really be a teacher without a student, you know, or a disciple as he calls it. Right. Because who are you really teaching? You know, the needle without <laughs> the thread is pretty useless. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And then uh, I was looking at in my notes, I just thought that this one, this one thing I had highlighted that just was very stoic. And I think I had read this actually before I read the stoics the first time because this was the second time I read the book. And the first time, you know, I hadn't highlighted this and then going back through this time, I found it. And it was very early on in the book. He said um, in the ground book specifically, not the book, you know, in general, he says, generally speaking, the way of the warrior is resolute acceptance of death. And I don't know, I found that to be I was like, wow, that's basically a stoic quote in this book by Musashi. Yeah, I don't know. I just found that like not saying there's like a useful necessarily uh, takeaway there, but, but it just was really interesting to see that. Effectively, I mean, you could see that written in Seneca and you wouldn't be surprised when it relates to something we talk about, too, in Way of Zen, right? That there are these strong parallels between Zen Buddhism or Buddhism in general and kind of the ancient Stoic and generally Mediterranean philosophy. There's a lot of overlaps. Yeah. And I wonder if it was like very useful for uh, warriors and specifically, right? Because like I'm 
you know, I'm obviously not a soldier, but I would imagine that a strong fear of death would not be helpful <laughs> in that field. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if, you know, the people who had this mentality just were better warriors, which probably led to that mentality spreading. Yeah. So I wonder if it's one of those, like, it was just more effective, which is why it, I mean, we talked about this, I think, on the Way of Zen episode, but I wonder if that's part the big reason why this mentality has kind of arisen in multiple places in the world. Well, it's probably a good coping mechanism too, right? If you're yeah. sort of having to face death all the time, then having a philosophy like that is going to make it easier to approach that. Well, think about all the duels Musashi was in, right? Like, Yeah, exactly. 60 odd duels. Yep. Could have died in any of them. So Yeah. Oh, there was also a section in, in the ground book early on that was kind of was really interesting. It reminded me of, you know, we see this in marketing. We see this in, I was going to say in martial arts. You see it all the time. You see it in basically every single field. So the, I'm just going to read it from the book and then I'll, I'll tell you what I'm referring to. So from the book, if we look at the world, we see arts for sale. Men use equipment to sell their own selves. As if with the nut and the flower, the nut has become less than the flower. In this kind of way of strategy, both those teaching and those learning the way are concerned with coloring and showing off their technique, trying to hasten the bloom of the flower. They speak of this dojo and that dojo. They are looking for profit. Someone once said, immature strategy is the cause of grief. That was a true saying. So I love like this dojo and that dojo example because it reminds me of like, I mean, I see this in, in like when people are talking about sales tactics. And I mean, there's just not a field that you don't see this in. There are tons of different tactics out there. And like, they're all useful to learn. But, you know, you, you basically find these, well, not these people, but plenty of people out there who are just focused on one specific technique at the expense of all the others. And they're pushing their school. And there's usually an ulterior motive for that, which he refers to here, right? Like they're looking for profit. Yeah. And he's basically saying this is not the way, this is not how to reach the way or this is not the way. Yeah. Well, and there's also this element of <laughs> kind of, I don't know, not, not shitting on, but challenging other schools. Yeah. Where I think that in some ways he's also promoting and supporting the, the style of fighting that he has developed throughout his life. And so you'll see a lot in the book, especially in the latter sections. Yeah. <laughs> I think like, yeah, wind in particular, wind is mostly focused on just criticizing other schools. Right. right. Where, <laughs> Which he's doing a little bit there too, right? Like, oh, some schools are just in it for profit, but you know, if you really want to be a warrior, you have to be in it for the kind of the spirit of it. Which so it's interesting to see both sides of it, right? And there was well, there was also one section of I believe it was in the ground book where he said like our school is about winning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's basically like yeah, forget about it was something like uh, talking about techniques, and then he was like, kind of like forget all that. Like our school is about winning. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, he's got this, he's got all these like great, very aphoristic lines in the book, too. So, you know, still in the ground section, he says, you know, this is a truth that when you sacrifice your life, you must make fullest use of your weaponry. It is false not to do so and to die with a weapon yet undrawn. Right. And again, kind of on the surface, talking about sword fighting on deeper level, right? If, you know, you can't allow yourself to fail without trying everything. Right, everything that you have at your disposal. And to do anything less than that is, as he says, it is false not to do so, right? Like you're not kind of dying honorably, you're not failing honorably if you still have, you know, ammo left that you could be using. Right. Exactly. It's like a dishonorable death. Right. And it kind of I mean, it goes back to stuff that we've talked about before too, where it's like if you idolize or 
romanticize failure too much, whether that's in kind of like the learning process or business process or just whatever, right? Then you're not really learning anything from it, right? You have to actually care. You have to actually try and, you know, really not want to fail because if you're okay with it, then it's not actually going to be a useful, productive failure. It's not going to teach you anything. Yeah. It's not going to teach you anything. It's not going to cause you any pain. Yeah. The pain is like, is actually essential. Yeah. (laughs) Otherwise it's not going to teach you anything. Yeah. It's like failure is, it's like a, it's not a paradox, but it's a, um, it's like a fine line, right? Like failure is great. It's as great as failure can be. If you really care about something and then, you know, you, you fail, you will obviously learn like what does not work or, you know, you should learn what does not work. But if you don't even care at all and you fail, you're probably not even going to remember in like a year. So yeah. uh, you probably didn't learn too much from that. You'll also be able to give yourself the excuse that you didn't really try, right? Mm-hmm. You can say, oh, well, you know, I didn't do this, this and this. But if you really go all out, then you're kind of forced to face yourself afterwards. There's also an ego uh, protection thing. Have you read, um blanking on the name of the book, but the author, I believe his name is William Percy. Have you heard of that guy? Uh, I don't think so. Basically, a book about alcoholism. Oh, okay. Do you know what I'm talking about or no? No, no, I'm looking it up now. I think that's the guy's name. Anyway, I, I can like picture the cover on my bookshelf. I'll, I'll send you the name later and hopefully we can put it in the show notes. But Lanterns on the Levee? No. Oh, okay. Anyway, it's basically this guy had to go to like rehab basically. But anyway, he in the book, most of the book is not actually that good, but there were just some really cool passages. So one was he was talking about like during rehab, he was like, I realized that you know, I ne- and I'm paraphrasing, but he realized he never actually uh, went all out in anything because he could always use the excuse in his, like he could justify to himself that, hey, I only failed at that thing because I didn't go all out. So in his head, he could maintain this image of I'm a talented person who just hasn't arrived yet because I just haven't gone all out yet, right? But if he did go all out and failed, he can't lie to himself anymore. He did go all out and fail, right? So all of a sudden it's like, okay, maybe I'm not actually good enough. And that's Mm. really scary to someone's ego. Yeah. No, I think and that's kind of the thing that uh, Musashi's imploring you to do here too, right? Yeah, you must go all in. Need to have skin in the game. Skin in the game, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So I also like, this is just another, you know, nice quotation, but he's talking about a a technique, right? Uh, I I believe about bows and arrows, right? Like shooting a bow. He goes, it will seem difficult at first, but everything is difficult at first. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. And he says, bows are difficult to draw. Halberds are difficult to wield. As you become accustomed to the bow, so your pull will become stronger. When you become used to wielding the long sword, you will gain the power of the way and wield the sword well. Right. Just like very simple, stoic. Like, yeah, it's hard, but everything's hard when you start. Yeah. And it seems like he, he strongly emphasizes having a diversity of abilities. Because mm, yep. later on in the section, he says, uh, you should not have a favorite weapon. To become overfamiliar with one weapon is as much a fault as not knowing it sufficiently well. You should not copy others, but use weapons which you can handle properly. It is bad for commanders and troops to have likes and dislikes. These are things you must learn thoroughly. Yeah, I thought that was really, really good. It's kind of like, um, so this is obviously applies to sports, but like in sports, like one of the best ways to throw somebody off or throw another team off is to just take away their favorite strategies, right? So like for a football team, if they're really, let's say, let's say you're you're going up against a quarterback who really likes to take his time before throwing, right? Likes to have a bunch of time to survey the field. The easiest way to throw him off is just rush a bunch of people at him so he doesn't have time. And all of a sudden, 
you know, like his timing's off, everything's off because he has a favorite. And in tennis, it was it's the exact same thing, right? If somebody like like they let's say they prefer their forehand, if you break down their forehand, like all their confidence is gone because now it's like, hey, my best shot is not even working. Like I'm screwed. Yeah. So and also have a favorite also means you have a weakness. Yeah, you have a weakness and you I mean, you just can't respond with as much kind of diversity of options, right? It's like the if if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yep. And I think that's where this can apply more broadly is that you shouldn't have kind of a favorite method or technique or really anything because then you just become overly reliant on it and you can't improvise with what you have or what the situation demands. Like I think, you know, if we're looking at it in a business perspective, if you only know how to do marketing through one channel, you're going to over you're going to obsess with, you know, using that channel to do all of your marketing or if you only know. Uh, how to do design in one style, then you're going to think that everything needs to be designed in that style. And it's like you want to have kind of that diversity of abilities and options in order to be as effective as possible. Exactly. And then also it's, you know, if something, um, well, I think it even applies to schools of philosophy, right? It's like to be overly invested in a single, and this is probably a Zen idea. I mean, this is definitely a Zen idea, right? Is like, you, you kind of need to be able to look at things from all the different perspectives because none of them is probably true in the truest sense of the word. And just to have like the ability to look at any given situation from, you know, a wide variety of angles, whether or not you agree with those angles, right? Like just being able to put yourself in a different, in, in different sets of perspectives. Well, Bruce Lee talked about that a lot in Striking Thoughts. Oh, cool. Because he, he's got a lot of lines in the book about how you really shouldn't study one martial arts school and you shouldn't study one philosophy. You should read everything and study everything and kind of figure out what makes the most sense for you. And he actually started a martial arts school at one point. And then after a while, he decided that, you know, that was wrong, that the, he shouldn't have a martial arts school, you know, just based on his philosophy. And so then he started spending his time and money trying to dismantle his school. Because he had like hmm. franchised it out and, you know, created these institutions for it. Using his name probably, which probably carried so much weight. Yeah, yeah. And so then he started trying to basically destroy it because he realized it was against his philosophy to have it encapsulated in one school. That's skin in the game. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> that's skin in the game at, you know, the truest level. Right, right. Well, Musashi's also got this line here that, you know, you should not copy others, but use weapons which you can handle properly. So it's also kind of the counterweight to what he's just said, right? So don't become over familiar with one weapon, but also don't just blindly copy others, right? Do what you know how to do. And so it's this tactical, you know, develop your skill set and use it. Don't jump around from one thing to the next as soon as you see a new shiny object, but also don't just, you know, retreat into your shell and stick to the one thing that's worked for you before, right? Find the balance between the two. Right. And I also think it's probably imploring people not to do like hero worship and just try to copy them. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people, a lot, you know, all of us have done that before, right? Where you kind of look at someone who you admire, who you think, you know, has it together and you just try to effectively copy them. But what works for them might not work for you just because you're not the same person. Right. And there's also just going to be so much lost in the idolization and when you yeah. meet them they might not be <laughs> anything like what you think they are right that's why they tell you not to meet your heroes <laughs> yeah exactly all right well and then i think so let's move on to the second book second book of this book which is water so i really like the sort of the metaphor of water and he, i don't think he's the first one to use this metaphor at all but 
you know, effectively he's, so I'm just going to read this from the book. With water as a basis, the spirit becomes like water. Water adopts the shape of its receptacle. It is sometimes a trickle and sometimes a wild sea. And I think that's like, that's spot on, right? It's like, he's effectively saying be fluid, right? That's what I'm taking from it. And, you know, some situations will call for, you know, for kind of adopting a certain stance, some situations, you know, call for adopting a different stance. So it's kind of like, I mean, there is a sameness to water, like water, whether it's in a storm or, you know, in, in the form of rain, it's still H2O and it's in your, you know, your glass of water in front of you, it's still H2O. So there is a, you know, I guess even keeled or sameness to all water, but then the form of it changes to adapt to the shape of the receptacle is what he's saying. Yeah, agreed. And I think, again, it's, <laughs> it's funny because I keep seeing Bruce Lee references. Uh, this is something he's famous for, too, is the like be like water speech. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I've heard of that. And, you know, being able to kind of break over the rocks, but not be stopped by them. And, you know, being able to work around an obstacle, not being able to be contained entirely. Right. So being shapeless and formless, it fits a lot with you know, what Musashi is saying in the last section, not to be over familiar with one weapon, right? You want to have this diversity of experiences and this fluidity. And and the one thing he mentioned in ground that we didn't talk on too much, but where he talks about learning indoor techniques, right? Where you'll, you'll think narrowly and forget the true way. So you want to learn outdoor technique, right? Like in the wild, how to adapt in unnatural situations, not just practicing your archery inside with no wind and no distractions, but practicing it outside with where there is wind and there are distractions and hills and everything. Uh, And it kind of fits this water concept too, right? That you want to be able to adapt to the situation wherever you are. You don't want to be rigid. You don't want to be limited in your experience. You want to be fluid for lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah. Also um, like it's so interesting, all the uh, commonalities between Bruce Lee and Musashi. But I wonder, I wonder if like Bruce Lee was giving like the modern interpretation of Musashi. It's probably what it was, right? Yeah, I'm sure he read. I'm sure he read all Musashi's stuff. And he also read a lot of the Stoics. So there's a lot of overlap there. And and again, these are also Zen Buddhism concepts. So right. Exactly. Yeah, Musashi didn't invent them necessarily. Right. He was like a big Zen practitioner. So that's probably where a lot of it's coming from, too. Interesting. Yeah, I got to check out Bruce Lee's stuff. I, I mean, I've seen like quotes here and there and I've, I've seen references and stuff, but I've never actually read. What's the book called? Striking Thoughts. Striking Thoughts. I've, yeah, I've, I have it on my list, but I haven't read it. So it seems interesting. I think if you Google Striking Thoughts summary, I'm probably on the first page for that. Nice. Not, not surprising. Because I, I pulled out all of my favorite quotations. Yeah, I'm like number six. So what books are you not on the front page for? <laughs> Honestly, I'm probably on the first page for most of them. <laughs> if you Google like book name plus summary, I'm on the first page for like a pretty significant number of them. So Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey summary. Shades of Grey uh, summary. The Secret Summary. <laughs> um, all, all of my favorite books. Yeah. Uh, someday. <laughs> someday. Hey, yeah. Why not? But uh, no, yeah, it's funny just how many people are looking for those summaries too. It's like a lot of... Really? It's a lot of traffic. Yeah, I'd say about... 1500 visitors a day to my site are looking at book summaries. Wow, that's really good. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. Well, and I guess each one probably adds. Yeah, each one adds to that. But you know, some are significantly more than others. So like the 12 rules for life summary, that one alone is like 300 people a day. Wow. Art of seduction, funny enough, is another like 200, 250. I feel like there's all these guys who are trying to get into pickup or whatever, and then they hear that they should read The Art of Seduction, and then they pick it up, and they're like, holy shit, there's no way I'm getting through this book. 
and then they're <laughs> looking up the summary. Yeah, there's like, where's the where's the spark notes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like this is too long. I'm not I'm not this committed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good book though. We should definitely cover that one. It's a great book. Yeah, we should cover that one at some point. It's a phenomenal book. It is not just like a scammy, you know, how to be a no. That's the surprising thing about it, right? It's like it applies to so much. Like he uses the term seduction very loosely. Yeah. It's not just sexual stuff. It's just as useful for politics, business, sales, pretty much everything where you want to build trust and interest in another person. It's kind of like influence even, right? Like you could use the techniques and influence for seduction, right? But you could also use them for sales or you could also use them for, you know, politics, as you said, right? So, yeah, I would say Robert Greene's examples are not just seduction related, like seduction in the sexual sense, right? Like there's seduction yeah. examples that are political in there as well. I would agree with that. I'll have to do it at some point. <laughs> yeah. I like his discussion here too of the combat stance and the everyday stance. Yep. Uh, where he says combat is life. You cannot, or yeah. So he's saying that combat's life. You can't keep them separate. And then from the book, in all forms of strategy, it is necessary to maintain the combat stance in everyday life and to make your everyday stance your combat stance. You must research this well. So he's talking about like life is combat and combat is life, right? You can't separate, I think, your military strategy, kind of like thinking persona from who you are day to day. You have to integrate them into being one person and one way of living. Right. You know what I thought of when I read that sentence? Again, this came up the second time I was reading it, not not when I originally read it. Jocko's like get in the game type of mentality. Okay. You know what I'm talking about? Like not entirely, no. Okay, well, I feel like everything Jocko talks about is literally exemplifying this mentality. Mm. Right? It's like it's almost like Jocko is preparing you for a war, but for every single day. <laughs> okay, yeah. So like war in the sense of like it's not this and I'm struggling to describe what I'm trying to say here, but basically he's not like trying to spike your cortisol levels and saying this is like a, you know, like a life or death, like combat situation. And, you know, that's going to surprise you. It's more just like you always need to be alert. And like, I feel like kind of like what Musashi is talking about here, like you've integrated this almost like not default aggressive, but yeah, just this like alert and in the game you know, <laughs> personality into your everyday life. And that you can maintain the same personality, whether you are in a confrontational situation or just a regular everyday life situation. It's the same person. It's not like two different personas. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I thought of with that, too, is especially people who have audiences who are, you know, one person when they're you know, like on the air or writing or like giving a presentation or whatever. And then they're a totally different mm-hmm. person in real life. And that always kind of bugged me. I know, like, so there's one example and I don't care about calling this guy out. Like his name's Nathan Latka. And so he's like probably one of the worst examples of like annoying internet marketer in terms of his like podcast and content and Facebook stuff. Like just imagine the most egregious internet marketing personality you possibly can. And <laughs> like, that's him. I'm picturing uh, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he just, you know, seems like a completely insufferable person. But I know a few people who are friends with him and they say he's a totally different person in real life. Right. And like that, I always have kind of an issue with where it just feels very fake. If your digital persona is that different from your real life persona, it's like you're kind of lying to people about who you are. And I think on a micro level, people do this too with, you know, Instagram and stuff and social media in general. 
Oh, definitely. Right. So pretending to be one person on social media while being a different person in real life. And I think it's tempting to do that all the time for all of us because we want to be the best person possible online. But I don't know. I mean, I find that it's more refreshing to see somebody's like real personality online, especially when they're just especially when they're saying stuff that might be considered controversial, because you can just tell that that's actually, you know, what they really think and what they're actually like. Right. It's it's refreshing almost. A hundred percent. And I think maybe part of the reason people try to do that online or on social media is just because let's say let's say somebody has ten thousand followers on, you know, Instagram or something. Mm-hmm. They probably only know like two hundred of those people in real life or three hundred people of those people in real life. Like so they're probably like, Okay, well, my audience, right? Well they're on some level they're probably thinking this, that their audience would just never, you know, know who they really are. There's probably something like that going on at some level in their brain. But you're right. It's disingenuous. And it's, I mean, it kind of pisses me off, too, when I see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially, you know, even if it's like, you know, how some people I feel like are very different with like their friends, let's say, versus in a, let's say, a work scenario. I understand, you know, you might be more, you know, vulgar or something with your friends than you might be like with your clients or something, right? I get that. Yeah. But when somebody is like, like I've seen people espousing effectively opposite viewpoints and that always pisses me off. Like on a, on a very like, let's say like clear cut issues where, you know, you're either on almost one side or the other. Yep. Like I don't really have a problem if somebody believes one thing versus the other. Usually it's more if you claim to believe both where it gets tricky. Yeah. Depending on the situation you're in, right? If you're trying to mold your beliefs to the people you're with. Well, and I'll give you, I'll give you actually the exact example I'm thinking about. It's like with a lot of the like me too stuff, Mm-hmm. You know, I think like, you know, you could think one thing or the other. And I think, you know, I, I would say there is something to be said for the movement. Like there clearly are people out there who are who, who do stuff. But then there are also areas where the movement has gone way, way, way too far. Yeah. And obviously falsely accuse people. So I think there's like both sides to be said. So I don't care what side somebody comes down on. What I get pissed off about is when somebody <laughs> with their guy friends will say one thing. And then in a group that has girls in it will say the exact opposite. And you're like. You know, it's like, how is this the same person? Yeah. Like that's really disingenuous. I think you you definitely see that too with, uh, I was actually, Kosut and I were talking about this last night, but like white people who try to win points with minorities by saying things that they think prove that they're not racist, right? <laughs> yeah. I think we've talked about it on the podcast before too, but it's always just like, it's kind of funny, but it's also like a, I think it's a hard thing not to do sometimes too, if you're like afraid of being labeled racist or sexist and then something you know might risk coming off that way and so then you want to try to project the opposite and then it just comes off very stilted and awkward and yeah it's just like all of that kind of posturing through stated opinions or like uh what's was a virtue signaling right virtue signaling yeah virtue signaling in general is kind of a good example of this where you know normally you wouldn't virtue signal with like your close friends right because you all have a good sense of what each other thinks but then if you're in a group and you're saying stuff to try to win points by looking like a good person that's usually a form of disingenuousness exactly yeah i actually hadn't thought of that i hadn't thought of this line being interpreted that way until you brought that up, but it actually makes total sense. It's basically like, you know, don't have two different personalities effectively. <laughs> right, right. Or, or your your real personality and then your like chameleon personality, the politician, right? Yep. I mean, I thought this was in general very useful. Um, this line where he says, in strategy, it is important to see distant things if they were close and to take a distanced view of close things. 
Mm -hmm. Such like a clever way of putting that, but it's so true. He's got so many great lines in this book. And the, the way it's written is so interesting, too, where it's just these great aphoristic insights. And then he tacks on another line like, you must study this well, or you must research this well. Or, yeah, I love that. <laughs> you, you must come to know this. <laughs> it sounds I feel I, I actually feel like I'm being, you know, mentored by a kind old Japanese dude. Right. It really Like, I know that's stereotyping a little bit, but it it really feels that way. No, no, I was just about to go there. Yeah, totally. Well, and I was also about to go to where I wonder how much of this feels different in Japanese versus English. Mm. Like, I wonder if that's part of it, too. Yeah. Which I, I just don't know the answer because I, I can't read Japanese or I don't, you know, and I don't know what the original was like. But I wonder, like, the research this well or studied this well thing. I wonder if that's like, I don't want to say it sounds awkward in English, but it's like, it is a little mis not not yeah it's kind of like out of place sometimes right where you're like okay i get this but research like we use the word research a little differently yeah i'd say yeah so i wondered like how much of that was like probably in japanese it means it, it, there's like a different nuanced meaning to this right or is it maybe like is that is that writing style also actually a kind of japanese thing right or is yeah. it just a musashi thing like i, I don't know yeah, I mean, you get what he's saying, like, it doesn't mess up your interpretation. But I almost I sometimes wonder, too, like, is this even a more beautiful book in Japanese? Like, are there things that didn't even come through? Right. In the translation? Well, he's a master of concision. He just can take these yeah. pretty robust ideas and simplify them down into it's very like Tao Te Ching style where you've got to read it a few times to like maybe start to get what's going on. So he, he's only, you know, 10% as difficult and opaque as that book. But it's in that same style where you do have to read some of these lines a couple times to, you know, get the surface meeting really quickly, right? Uh, in strategy, see far away things as if close and close things as if far. But then, you know, you think about it more and you take it another level deeper and it's okay. You know, we need to zoom out on our emotions and our reactions. And then we need to like zoom in on stuff that's like very far in the future and try to think about all of that, right? There's like these layered meanings to it that you can pack into one sentence, which is pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And then this is almost just like a motivating quote that yeah. I could see someone putting up on a wall. But he says, again, from the book, study strategy over the years and achieve the spirit of the warrior. Today is victory over yourself of yesterday. Tomorrow is your victory over lesser men. <laughs> I love yeah. it. That's it amazing. Is. Also, the victory over yourself of yesterday. What book did that come up in? That was definitely in something else where it's like compare yourself to. Oh, that was 12 Rules for Life. Yeah, 12 Rules for Life. Right. Mastery. It's come up a few places. Well, in 12 Rules for Life, wasn't it like compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to others or something? Yeah, yeah. I think that was one of the principles or one of the rules. Right, exactly. I think principles might have had something about that too. Yeah, like being internally focused. Yeah. We're getting to the point where I have to open up our website during the conversation just to remember all the books we've covered, which is a cool position to be in. It's awesome. So I'm like looking through it and I'm just like, oh, yeah, we did, you know, Sovereign Individual and Finite Infinite Games. It's kind of fun. Hey, some someday we'll be where uh, where Rogan is, where he has what, like over a thousand now? Well, we'll, we'll have to start doing more than one a week if we want to break a thousand. <laughs> he, he's helped by doing three to four episodes a week. We're going to be doing this net for like 20, 30 or infinite number of years. Yeah, we, we would have to do it for 20 years to get to a thousand. Depending on how science goes. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be crazy if we had discussions of a thousand books. That would be. Dude, it is a infinite game. So yes. we'll see. <laughs> Horizontal thinking. Horizontal thinking. Exactly. That would be cool, though, to have if you had discussions of a thousand books like, yeah. and they were publicly available. That would be a pretty cool podcast. That'd be like a pretty cool library. Ooh, like yeah. in general. Well, I think even when we get to a hundred, it'll be kind of cool. 
Yeah, definitely. But to be fair, there are some, you know, recap episodes and listener Q and A's and stuff in there, but still, you know, hundred episodes is cool. Yeah. And I guess some are not books, but still, yeah. Anyway, hundred episodes would be a cool milestone. Close enough. Y'all get the idea. <laughs> we'll stop we'll stop feeling ourselves now for a second. <laughs> <laughs> we can we can pick it up after the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. I think that was it for water. That's it for water. Yeah. Should we move on to fire? Yeah. All right. So fire is where we start to get into a bit more of the, I guess, like tactical stuff. I think like the fire book in general was mostly tactic specific. Yeah, there was a lot of like sort. It reminded me of that chapter in um, Inner Game of Tennis. Inner Game of Tennis. Yep. Where he got very into like the tennis tactical. How to do your forehand and your backhand. Exactly. Yeah, this was like, I feel like Fire was a pretty long chapter, too, relative to some of the other ones, but it was very tactical. Yeah, it was it was very long, but I felt like I got fewer notes from it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, probably just because it had all of that, like, sword fighting specific stuff. It's going to backfire if we get to a sword fight when anybody were going to be like, damn, I wish I paid closer attention to Fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, oh, that'll teach us. <laughs> it's funny. I actually used to do a martial art focused on samurai style sword fighting no way it's a lot of fun what's it called it's called uh hidon kamdo okay it's actually a korean art but it's uh based on kind of samurai sword fighting styles and you know like taekwondo and stuff you learn forms right which are basically like dances with the martial art but then we also did sparring which is pretty fun so you have these like long bamboo swords that are like it's not you know a stick of bamboo it's four strips of bamboo tied together to make this very like springy but still hurts kind of sword Hmm. and then you actually have sparring competitions which are a lot of fun that's kind of cool that was a good time that's awesome so you you have some experience with this stuff (laughs) (laughs) a very modest amount i haven't uh, gotten any any real duels but (laughs) i've still got the swords and stuff at home in dc so I think when I have an apartment with a bit more space, I'd like to bring them. Yeah. Because we, there would be part of the competitions and stuff too, you would do like cutting, right? So there's actually really an art to cutting things cleanly. And so they would hold up, you know, these thick sheets of paper or, you know, a row of six or seven pieces of bamboo or a bale of straw or even fruit and stuff. And then the competition would be, you know, how cleanly and evenly can you cut it without leaving any fraying in what you're cutting right but you have to cut it fast right as if you're actually like slashing at someone and then get through you know these six pieces of bamboo without leaving any fraying with a nice clean line it's really fun and surprisingly difficult to do i gotta check that out sometime you know if there's a place in new york that i'm sure there are everything's in new york i'm sure there's (laughs) a place in new york yeah it's pretty hard to find in most cities but i bet you could find a um, gumdo or cumdo school in new york interesting so uh yeah so one thing i really from this book that i could totally see being super, super important for sword fighting. Also, it was really important in plenty of other things too. I'm going to read this from the firebook. The essence of this book is that you must train day and night in order to make quick decisions. In strategy, it is necessary to treat training as part of normal life with your spirit unchanging. And I think like obviously in sword fighting, decisions are going so fast, you don't have time to think about it. You don't have time to be like, oh, I should move my right hand this way, right? It just is not going to work you probably won't survive (laughs) too long (laughs) you know but i guess like so so to his point you know i'd say sword fighting it's almost a um like natural selection of if you don't make it part of if you aren't making quick decisions like you're not going to be sword fighting very long but i would say in other things too like this is kind of similar like you know in every kind of skill like i would say for you right i would imagine for a lot of your marketing work 
it's almost second nature now because you've been training, you know, I'm going to use the word training. You've been training for so long and done it, you know, so deeply that it's just a lot of it has probably become innate knowledge that you don't even think about. Yeah. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's funny, too, because you, you know when that has happened, if you have a hard time explaining it or if you yeah. <laughs> uh, if you have a hard time, like knowing what somebody doesn't know about it, right? When you run into that curse of knowledge issue. Yeah, and that becomes really hard to like teach somebody <laughs> once you're at that point. Yep. <laughs> I learned that every time I try to do a screen share and explain things, especially on like sales calls. And then I'm just talking at a mile a minute and they're like, what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> which which can go either way. They can either be just so confused that they don't want to work together or they can just be really confused and that makes them think that you're like really smart and know what you're doing. And then... They want to work together. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a hit or miss, but it hit or miss. I mean, I would imagine a lot of people would get impressed by that, though, because you can also kind of tell you can tell in some ways when the other person has it. I mean, I don't know how to like set some hard and fast rules to it, but there is you can sort of tell when maybe somebody could be really good at pretending, but you can kind of tell when the person knows so much that they're having trouble putting it into words. Yeah. Oh, I would say I've, I've definitely experienced that with some software developers before. And in general, you know, like not all software developers are bad communicators, but there are a lot of bad communicators in the software engineering community. But there are some who are good communicators, but just know so much that when you start asking them about how they're actually doing something, they almost like they just can't put it into words because there's yeah, it's almost like a fingertip feel at that point. Well, I think that's where some people make mistakes, too, with trying to find a mentor or someone to learn from is they try to find people who are super far along and super successful. But a lot of times the person who can give you the best advice is someone who's just a few steps ahead of you and they remember what it was like to be in your position. I got that advice a while ago I mean, when I was working on Tailored Fit in college and I wanted to get intro to the people who ran ModCloth. Familiar with them? Yeah. I mean, I don't know them, but I know the company. You know the company, yeah. And I, I talked to their CTO and I was asking him if he thought it would make sense for me to talk to like the CEO to try to get advice on you know, growing a clothing-related business from the ground up. And what the CTO said that I thought was really smart was that they didn't remember what it was like to have all of those issues anymore, right? They were you know, too far gone from it. And so you kind of want to find someone who's just a little bit ahead of you who has solved the problems you're running into right now because they're going to be able to give you kind of the best advice. Yeah, I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, because think about it. If somebody is 60 years old, well, one, they probably grew up. I'm not saying the ModCloth person was 60, but just and it doesn't have much to do with age. It's more like steps. Mm -hmm. But I guess if somebody is, you know, they built a great business and they're, you know, head of a billion dollar company now or something, we have a hard time remembering or honestly giving you practical advice on the like zero to one stage because they just have been out of it for so long. Exactly. That's really that's really good advice. And it's cool that you got that advice so early. Because I think it definitely takes, I mean, it, I feel like that took me a long time to realize that. He could have also just been saying it because he didn't want to intro me. But I like to think <laughs> that it was. <laughs> That's the cynical way. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I like to think that it was it was helpful advice. <laughs> so th- there's, there's this other, this next part of the firebook that I like about the methods to forestall the enemy, where there's really just three ways that you can slow down your enemy's attack, right? So one, you can forestall by attacking the enemy. You can forestall by responding to his attack by feigning weakness, then attacking. Or you can forestall by attacking when he attacks and meeting him head on. So these are kind of like the main ways to 
try to prevent your enemy from succeeding. You either attack them, you wait for them to attack, you know, pretend to be weak and then, you know, counterattack or you attack right when they attack and kind of meet them head on. And those are sort of, I guess, your options in pretty much every competitive, like anything competitive that you would do. Or you really just have one of those three things that you can pursue unless you just want to, you know, run away. But yeah. I don't think that's <laughs> I think if you do that, you have to commit Harikiri, right? It's it's not honorable. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although I would say that the uh, like guerrilla warfare kind of might give another. Uh, well, I guess that's the feigning weakness, then attacking thing. Yeah, I think that would fall under feigning weakness. Yeah, like you kind of disappear into the jungles and then attack. Right. Wait for the right moment. Hmm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that does fall under number two in this case. That's really cool. You're right, because there, there is no other option. Like your fourth option is basically to just die or lose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which Musashi would not approve. No, no, not at all. I mean, you, you either attack first, you delay when they attack and then attack or you attack right when they attack. It's kind of like there's not much else you could do unless you choose not to attack back. But I don't think that's an option. Yeah, it's just giving up. There's also something here to be said for, uh, like he says, maintain control of your position. Or I guess he says it is bad to be led about by the enemy. You must always be able to lead the enemy about. I think there's something there around uh, just being able to take the initiative yourself. There's like a psychological advantage to that as well, where you're not as responsive. You're you're making the, the enemy be responsive to you. Yeah, well, that's what I thought of as well, is there's pretty much always one person acting and one person reacting. Yep. And as much as possible, you want to, I think, be the one doing the acting and making the other person respond to you. It's a big focus in a lot of uh, like competitive board games too, you know, like chess or Go. So I know in, in learning Go, that's a big element is how much of your enemy's moves can you make them, you know, trying to respond to your placements so that you can gain board control right. while they're trying to like stop you from getting it versus, you know, you having to respond to them. So really good moves are ones where you can like swap the control, right? And take it back from them by like blocking one of their efforts while simultaneously requiring them to respond to your effort, right? That's like an ideal move in most situations. Right. And it's like, um, I guess if they have to respond to your moves, then they can't set up their own strategy. Exactly. So then they're at a disadvantage. It's a big thing in video games too, right? If you're doing competitive video games like StarCraft, Dota, all of those. Yeah. If you're keeping them on the reactive, then they can't like build up their resources or their strength or anything in order to beat you in the long run. So it's sort of like some balance to that, too, that you want to try to keep them reactive so they can't really come up with a plan of their own. Yeah, that's the exact same strategy as this. Yeah, I like this. I like this element of uh, finding out their resources. So he says, oh, yeah, that was so smart. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. In large scale strategy, when you cannot see the enemy's position, indicate that you are about to attack strongly to discover his resources. It is easy then to defeat him with a different method once you see his resources. So you do this kind of like feign the attack to draw them out, see what they actually have. And then once you have that information, you can put together a, a better attack to respond to, you know, what they actually have to combat you with. Yeah, that's just brilliant. It's such a good strategy. And it does work, too. Like I was mm-hmm. going to say in video games or like I would I would even say in um, like in business, too. Right. Like if you are I'm, I'm, this obviously requires somebody going after like a very competitive market. So I was thinking like an Uber and Lyft type of situation. Like if one of them announced a feature that was just super innovative, the other one would almost certainly have to respond with whatever they were working on. That was super innovative. Yeah. Just like stay relevant or stay in the news. Like let's say Uber 
made an announcement that was like, hey, by the end of this year, we're going to have fully self-driving cars all around the country, right? And like, I'm not saying that's what they're doing, but just making it up. Like, everybody would be talking about that, right? And like, to stay relevant, Lyft would have to probably show their hand of like what they're working on. That's super cool. Yeah. And then Uber could be like, just kidding. <laughs> Although you would lose credibility doing that if you did it too many times. So yeah, exactly. You can only you can only cry wolf so often before people start taking your uh, announcements seriously. Right. Although for Elon, it's worked so far. <laughs> I, that's actually the example I was about to give. I was going to say, I mean, nobody really takes Elon seriously when he gives a timing estimate for something being done. Exactly. <laughs> I think they take it seriously. Like this will be done. Yeah. At some point. But it's like it's at some point. We don't know when. But probably like twice as long as he expects. <laughs> yeah. Although, you know, I think he came pretty close on the timing for Tesla's initial rollout with like the three cars. Oh, really? I think he said it would take about 10 years. So oh, okay. I think maybe he's better on the macro level than the micro level. Which would probably make sense. Yeah, I guess it would make sense, right? Like he, he won't be able to you know, ramp up Model 3 production quite as fast as he thinks he can. But, you know, they might be able to get to the automated taxi service in five years, right? Like he yeah. says they can. Yeah, I- I'm still very dubious that we're going to have people on Mars in 2024. But that'd be yeah. cool if we do. Same. Dude, that's like not even six years away. Yeah, right. That's amazing. If we could probably like still be doing this podcast and there could be people chilling on Mars. Yeah, that's wild. If there's ever return trips, like maybe we'll record this episode from Mars. There we go. At some point, or an episode from Mars. I'd be down. <laughs> With Elon. With Elon. The How to Think Like Elon Musk episode part two. Yeah. <laughs> and he can be like, yeah, you guys are wrong in that, yeah, in exactly. that article. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> He's like, really, I just take a lot of Ambien and make shit up, and it ends up working out. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, was there anything else in fire? I think that was... Yeah, I think that those were, those were my main ones. Yeah, I'm just checking mine. Oh, I like the cross out of Ford section. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. You want to read it? Yeah. So I'm just going to read this out. In strategy, also, it is important to cross out of Ford. Discern the enemy's capability and knowing your own strong points, cross the Ford at the advantageous place as a good captain crosses a sea route. If you succeed in crossing at the best place, you may take your ease. To cross out of Ford means to attack the enemy's weak point and to put yourself in an advantageous position. I think it's like entering negotiations from a place of strength in general. Right. That's kind of a good, good general rule. But it's also to just, I mean, even thinking about it at that point at, in this manner is a really good analogy because the same thing also would apply to even like making the decision to enter a negotiation. So and I'll give like maybe a concrete example would be if let's say you have a company that is, you know, maybe it's doing OK or maybe, you know, it's just chugging along and somebody approaches you to buy your company. But, you know, at that point in time you're not as strong as you would be in 12 months, it might actually be wise to punt that decision to even engage in that conversation of acquisition at that point, right? Because you're not in this position of strength. So you may enter this negotiation and completely undersell yourself, but you can choose to enter that negotiation when you're in a position of strength and things will probably go a lot better. Um, So like timing, I viewed this actually from a timing perspective, this section. It's like there are times when you are strong and there are times when you're not as strong and and there's also likewise times when your enemy is strong or your opponent is strong and times when they're not. Yeah. No, I, I like that a lot. And sort of having the discipline to delay for when you have that right time and not rushing into things is like particularly hard. Oh yeah. I know it is for me. I'm like very impatient. I just want to do everything right away. Yep. <laughs> but it doesn't always make sense to. 
Yeah, that's our ADHD coming up. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think you're right. There's a discipline angle there too, which I didn't pick up on, but that's a good point. It's like having the discipline to not cross when you're not in that strong point, but also just even being aware of it too. I think that's what he means by discern the enemy's capability. Right. It's like being even aware of this kind of thing. Being cognizant of it, yeah. Yeah, and then I think the other... The other one that I had that I really like, and this is maybe not a super unique insight by Musashi, but he's basically talking about uh, to become the enemy, right? It means to think of yourself in the enemy's position. So kind of being able to put yourself in the other side's shoes and trying to think through like, why are they doing what they're doing and what are they worried about and what are the, you know, maybe right tactics to take advantage of that? Yeah, You can kind of do that via, I call it empathy because I do think it is basically the same thing as empathy. But you're just using empathy for a strategic purpose. Yeah. And that is like a useful thing to do sometimes too, just to understand somebody who you're I mean, not even like fighting with, but confused by. Right. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before on the show, but trying to put yourself in the place of people whose opinions you just don't understand at all, but trying to think through how they could arrive at those opinions from their world situation. And a lot of times you realize that people make way more sense than they might at first blush, right? Where it's like, you can say, you know, oh my God, why would they do this? This makes no sense. Or why do they think this? But then if you kind of like, you know, really try to get into their situation in their shoes, then it actually ends up making perfect sense. And it would almost be silly not for them to think what they think. Right, exactly. And then in strategy too, I think it's, and then it ends up being useful because it can be very obvious what somebody would do. Right. Assuming that, you know, they think relatively similarly to you if you were in their situation. It's kind of like, you know, playing chess, right? You're trying to play a few moves ahead by imagining what they will do in response to your moves. And yeah, the better or worse you can predict that, the better or worse you're going to do. It's, it's poker as well, right? Trying to figure out how everyone at the table thinks as much as you can so that you can at least somewhat accurately predict their moves based on what you would do in their situation or you know, working backwards too. It's like, okay, they did this. So what what situation would I be in where I would do that, right? That's the kind of flip side of it. That's, unless that's harder or easier, it's probably harder. Yeah, to imagine like, why would I take that action? Yeah, why would I take that action? Yeah. Like, what do I not see that would make that make sense? Yeah, I find that to be useful. Like, you're right. When you're confused by somebody's behavior, it's a very good way to um, to kind of unlock that. <laughs> yeah. To figure out why someone's acting, why they're acting, or the way that they're acting. Why are they doing this? <laughs> Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's hard to remind yourself of that sometimes, but I, I just found it's a good unblocking tactic in a whole bunch of things, right? Even just interpersonal relationships. Yeah, agreed. Okay. Well, I think that's it for fire. I think it's for fire. Yeah. And wind, I don't know how much time we want to spend on because it's really just him kind of criticizing <laughs> other schools. Yep. Musashi showing he's the alpha dog. Yeah, exactly. He's just sort of going through and systematically criticizing all the schools that are not the Ichi school. Yep. <laughs> but I, I like this distinction he does make that he says, in my Ichi school of the long sword, there is neither gate nor interior. There is no inner meaning in sword attitudes. You must simply keep your spirit true to realize the virtue of strategy. And so it sounds like what he's getting at is that it's not a you know walled garden, closed institution that is barred to you. It's just sort of a choice and a way of life that anyone can choose to adopt. And, you know, he's saying that there's no gate and no interior, right? There is no actual school. It is a school of thought and anyone can choose to absorb it if you want to, you know, be a badass motherfucker and win lots of sword fights, which is, (laughs) which I think is like a nice way of framing it and kind of useful too, because it 
it makes all of it applicable and it also removes excuses, right? It kind of prevents you from being able to say like, oh, well, you know, I wasn't accepted into the school. And so that's why I'm not good enough. And he's saying like, no, anybody can do this if you just, you know, train your mind on it. And so you really have no excuse to not absorb his teachings. Exactly. I mean, I thought I thought it was like interesting to read. It's just there were just weren't that many takeaways from it. Yeah, not not a ton that is like, you know, worth highlighting and I think remembering yeah. so much. It's kind of cool to read. And then Void was an interesting one. I was actually going to ask you what you were able to take away from Void because it was almost it reminded me of some of the Zen stuff. Oh, well, not some, a lot of the Zen stuff, right? Yeah. It's almost like what you can't speak about. It was like the um, not conventional knowledge. What's the other, the second one that they talk about in that book? Yeah, there was conventional and then um, whatever's like the unspeakable knowledge, effectively. Yeah, the un- unspoken knowledge. Yeah. Yeah, it reminded me of that a little bit. And then it also reminded me of the um, just a lot of the stuff that came up in the Way of Zen episode was void. But then, I, but I also like, again, I didn't quite know what to take away. I just thought it was very cool to see him apply a lot of those thoughts to sword fighting or just like talking about those in the context of sword fighting. It was also a super short section relative to the other ones. It's really just a few paragraphs. But I think the other big thing with the Void book is kind of like infinite game. Yeah, a little bit infinite gamey and also a little bit of, hey, I've said all of this stuff, but you must also like figure it out for yourself. And I'll just read from this quotation I took from it. By void, I mean that which has no beginning and no end. Attaining this principle means not attaining the principle. The way of strategy is the way of nature. When you appreciate the power of nature, knowing rhythm of any situation, you'll be able to hit the enemy naturally and strike naturally. So it feels like he's saying that, you know, this is just like his thinking right now. But, you know, true mastery is stuff that you cannot put into a book like this. It's like a completely natural, non-thinking instinctual like in tuneness with nature and you can also never really get there right it it has no end yes and pretty much as soon as you come close to it it will elude you again and there will always be more to learn further to go and that he doesn't want his book to be seen as the definitive like this is how you become a great sword fighter right he's really saying like no this is just it's all ephemeral and always changing and you have to figure it out for yourself and also never think that you're done, right? It's the horizontal thinking. Horizontal thinking, exactly. And I think that's a great point. It's like you're not going to become a great sword fighter by reading this book. And also, I think he doesn't like dogma, right? Yeah, he seems very anti-dogma. Yeah. So I think that's also partially what he's saying here is just like, these are some principles, but this is not even where it starts and this is not where it ends. These are just some principles. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that. I feel like he would be cool to talk to. Like, obviously, he's long gone, but he would have been cool to talk to. Very cool to talk to. And if he could speak English or we could speak Japanese. That would be great, too. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good one. And honestly, like for anyone who is intimidated by the size of Atlas Shrugged, like this is a good sort of counterpoint to Atlas Shrugged in terms of book length. Yeah. You could finish this book in like two hours if you want, or you can take longer. You know, it's fine. But it's not going to be multiple months of reading this book. No, it'd be pretty easy to do it in one sitting if you wanted. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I would definitely recommend checking it out. I, I'm only halfway through it, but the novel is quite good too. So, you know, obviously I'm not fully qualified to recommend it because I haven't finished it, but it is very good. I'm just particularly bad at reading fiction books. So, And I've heard, it, I've heard of it recommended by many other people too. Yeah, uh, Sebastian Marshall, um, he's got a pretty popular blog and he was on Natchat at one point. He says it's his favorite book it's like his alice shrugged oh wow okay that's uh that's a really high recommendation i actually heard uh jocko and tim ferris both recommend this too 
Yeah, well, Jocko did an episode on both books, Five Rings and Musashi. Right. And did Tim Ferriss join for the Musashi episode or something? I feel like he recommended it, too. That's a good question. I don't even know if I listened to the Musashi episode. I remember Jocko covering five rings. I, I didn't listen to it because I, I, I wanted to finish the book. <laughs> I didn't want it spoiled. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. I think that also might be partially why I didn't open up that episode either, because I know I want to read it. I just haven't read it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. Next time we want to do next want to do another like, Atlas Shrugged sized <laughs> book. Maybe we'll do that. We've got a thousand episodes to get through, so there's lots of books to cover. Exactly. I feel like we get recommendations all the time now from people, from our lovely listeners. Yeah, yeah, we get so many recommendations, which is great. We love getting them, so keep sending them. Keep sending them, yeah. It's awesome. Oh, there was one that came in this week, which we should definitely do, and is somewhat related to this, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Have you read it? I have not read it, so I would be down to uh, do that at some point. It'll take you take us a while, though, so maybe you want to you know, pump the brakes on that for a set. You know, just, just catch your breath from Atlas. <laughs> oh, is it long? Yeah, it's not as long as Atlas, for sure. Okay. Right? But it's definitely in that like 400, 450-ish pages. But it's also not like... Like there are philosophical chapters in there that are like not going to flow as easily as Atlas. Got it. Super interesting. There's like, So it basically alternates between like narrative and like philosophy effectively. Okay, cool. Really interesting book. Like it was one of my most impactful books I've ever read in my life. Just in, at that point in time of my life, I found it to be... Super interesting, but it reconciles a lot of the like art versus science dichotomy that, you know, I feel like, uh, well, we've talked about this before, but it's not as much of a dichotomy as people maybe make it out to be. And the book really like marries the two as being like one and the same. It's, it's really interesting. It's just a, I've never read a book about anything like similar to that. Huh. Okay. It was, it was really cool, but it, it will take us a while to get through. Got it. It's just dense, like just a lot of stuff in there. We'll have, to, we'll have to put it on the schedule and we can keep pushing it back months at a time like Atlas Shrugged until we <laughs> finally get to it. <laughs> yeah, I guess we'll talk about doing it in July and then do it in like September. <laughs> yeah, that should work. <laughs> That'll work. <laughs> Pencil it in. Pencil it in. Um, but yeah, any other last thoughts? No, I think people should definitely go grab a copy of this. It's a yeah. really easy read, really good read. Um, and imagine they've, if they're listening to this podcast, they've probably heard of this book before. Just if you haven't read it, just, you know, bite the bullet and do it. It's good. Pick it up. It's easy. It's worth it. Yeah, I think, uh, well, we need to talk about our lovely sponsors. Yeah, let's let's do that. So we'll give another quick shout out for Scentbird. So if you would like to smell lovely and have an easy solution for all of your perfume and cologne needs, then check out Scentbird.com. And uh, you can use code THINK to get half off your first delivery. So at only seven fifty to try one of their premium scents and then you can keep getting the same one each month get new ones uh you got options so definitely check them out and let's see what are you drinking right now oh well i'm drinking two things i've got some mushroom coffee from four sigmatic so foursigmatic.com slash think which i am enjoying as always sort of our drink of choice they've got a think blend which uh they actually created for us so no no they didn't yeah <laughs> but their, their, their mushroom coffee is called think and it does it does make you think and it does make you go on tangents so would recommend that uh would recommend their cordyceps blend their reishi blend for sleep a deal gets their 10 mushroom blend and he says he really likes that so i oh, really i've never tried that i got you yeah, th those are all really good. Use code THINK to get, I believe it's 15% off your mushroom coffee order. 
And the other thing I'm drinking is a Lapsong Suchong black tea. And if you haven't had this tea before, it love that tea. Yeah, it's like a brandy, right? It's kind of like a brandy or a whiskey, very kind of like smoky, dark liquor flavor to it. Yeah, I was gonna say like a smoky scotch. Yeah, like a scotch. Yep. I think a scotch is a good example. So it's like the scotch of black teas. It's delicious. It's- Dude, that's a good, good tagline. Yeah. Uh, not for everyone. I'll be honest. I, you know, <laughs> whenever when I opened it up and let Cosette smell it, she really like turned up her nose, did not like the smell. So it's it's an acquired taste. Some people are not going to like it. But about pepper. Uh, yeah, I got to got to test it on pepper. But <laughs> so Lapsong Suchong likes it. <laughs> from uh from cup and leaf you can use code think to get 20 percent off your first order there uh if you don't like the sound of scotch tea then i would also <laughs> recommend the earl gray cream black tea that we talked about earlier that one is delicious and everyone loves that one so check that out Let's see we've also got uh kettle and fire for your delicious bone broth they have their mushroom chicken bone broth on their site now. So I would definitely recommend that one. It is delicious. It's got you know just great flavoring. It's got some mushroomy goodness in it too. So for some extra health benefits. And if you go to kettleandfire.com slash think, you'll get up to 28% off your first order. So they have really good deals for you guys. Definitely check that out. Uh, I also like to cook with their beef broth. Mm, such a good idea. Yeah, it's it's a great base for making carnitas and things like that in the Instant Pot. And then, Neil, I guess you use it for making quinoa, right? Oh, it's so good for quinoa. Yeah, because yeah. what I normally do with quinoa is I would just throw water and then maybe spice it a little bit. But with the bone broth, it kind of comes pre-spiced. So you get the spices, you get some good flavor. And, of course, you get your good collagen and all sorts of other goodness that goes in there. So you turn your quinoa into a nutritional powerhouse just by adding bone broth. There you go tastes so good it makes your life easier yeah no I, I haven't tried that yet i gotta try that we should also talk about the shelf stability that's true it lasts what like two years oh yeah it lasts forever so you don't even have to worry like if you i would honestly recommend just go to the website kettlefire.com think and get the biggest order size you can off there i think that's the one that gives you the what is it 28 percent yeah plus free shipping yeah you might as well just do that because you know it's not going bad you're going to use it and it doesn't take up that much space they're packaged this is like really underrated part of how they're packaged. It's like little boxes. Mm-hmm. So they stack. And in New York, I feel like maybe we think about this more than other places. <laughs> but when space is at a premium, it doesn't take up a whole lot of space. Yeah, that's very true. So definitely check them out. And then last but not least is Perfect Keto. So, you know, if you're doing, if you're trying to do a keto diet, check out their ketone supplements, Perfect Keto Exogenous Ketones. They're excellent. If you're not, then you should still check out their MCT oil powder which I love. They've got a matcha flavored one that is delicious. And, you know, MCT, some of the best kind of fats you can have. You can mix this in your smoothies. You can have it straight in the morning. Uh, I mix it with my athletic greens in the morning, which just makes like for a super healthy shake. And they've got a lot of other good stuff too. They've got a collagen protein. They've got a pre-workout that's, you know, keto friendly and all of their stuff is, you know, pretty great too. So you can do perfectketo.com slash think and you will get 20% off your order there as well. Aside from those, if you want to buy anything on Amazon, go to majorthinkpodcast.com slash support first and click through on the link to Amazon and that'll give us a small cut of anything you spend. Doesn't cost you anything extra, just helps support the show a bit. And yeah, leave a review, tell your friends, you know, keep sharing the podcast, hit us up on Twitter. If you have feedback, questions, thoughts, book ideas or recommendations, you know, we always love to hear that. And I think that's most of it. Anything else, Neil? 
No, I think we just we love hearing from people. And oh, I will mention, you know, we got some really good feedback on the listener Q&A episode. So if you want to be kept up to date on when the next one is, you should definitely get on the email list because we'll let people know. And that's also where you would go submit your questions. So yeah. if you want to be one of the lucky people who got their questions answered by us struggling with them, I guess, on the next Q&A episode, you're going to have to be on the email list and uh, reach out to us there. But um, yeah, other than that, keep hitting us up. I, I personally, I just love you know hearing from people. And yeah, just the book recommendations are great too. Definitely. And with that, I think we will see everyone next week. Yep. See you guys next week. Have a good one.